All right, welcome back to the podcast. And in this episode, I interview Dr. Rebecca Laird, and she is a professor at Point Loma University in California. And she's also the author of the book, Ordained Women in the Church of the Nazarene, The First Generation. So if you haven't read that book, check it out. I posted a link in the comment or in the description for the episode, the show notes. And if you have been ordained in the last 10 years, probably you've had to read that book. Maybe even the last 15 years, um, you've had to read that book for ordination, or at least I sure hope you did. Um, it's just loaded with great stories of women in the those first early years of the church that were planning churches, um, opening schools, orphanages, um, shelters, all those, all those sorts of ministries and just doing incredible things. And sometimes we do think that, um, you know, we've got the corner market on, um, being progressive and we have a lot that we could learn from those who have gone before us. Uh, anyway, this is a great episode. We talk about being shaped uh, in the context of community rather than just our individual faith. Uh, we also talk about leaning into our gifts versus focusing so much on the role that we uh, where we serve, but focusing on the gifts that we've been given and, and really leaning into those uh, gifts and graces from God. Anyway, there's just a lot of good stuff that's packed into this episode. You're going to want to listen to it a couple times through. Please share it with someone. And we are, the podcast is now on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, as well as Podbean. So there's a way that you can listen. Um, and I know there's a lot of you who are listening on Apple Podcasts, so awesome. And more and more of you are finding the podcast on Google as well as Spotify. So lots of good things. Hoping to squeeze in a really short Christmas episode, New Year episode before the end of the year. And we already have one recorded for January. Uh, another one on the books to record next week. And just excited about some things that are happening. I have some uh, goals that I've already set for the podcast, including getting uh, at least one international pastor on the podcast next year. So, hey, if you want to recommend one and you have a way for me to contact them, send me a DM. I would love to hear from you uh, and find a way to connect with them as well. So enjoy the episode. tell better stories instead of complaining about it right what if we right. just start telling the stories and, and really flood the airwaves with something different nice Hi. to meet you yes nice to meet you too thank you linda's been talking about you i yeah. like to be talked about most of the time <laughs> <laughs> I really like the dinner church kinds of things. It's been fun. What a wonderful cohort this has been. Yeah. Well, it's been exciting doing it. And we just, we've got all kinds of new things we're trying. And I mean, this is the year to try new things. So <laughs> I think it's the year to try new things and your um, willingness to take risks and to get out there. You're going to have all sorts of advice, big and small about ministry that's uh, going to be useful, I think, for yeah. lots of others too, yeah. It's been exciting. So yeah, being on this new journey, like I like trying new stuff anyway, so more used to try new stuff. <laughs> so, so where are you currently serving? I know you're, you're at Point Loma. Mm -hmm. I'm at Point Loma, so I'm in San Diego. And uh, we just finished the semester uh, about 10 days ago. So grades were due last Friday, I believe. And then grades for the DMIN program are due this Friday. So I'm in San Diego, but I'm basically doing what I'm doing right now, sitting in front of a computer a lot of the time. Yeah, doing Zoom and more Zoom. 
Yeah, I went, I went out and mailed a package to my mother to take a walk and to hopefully clear my brain a little bit. Yeah. What's, what's your weather there today? It's nice. Yeah. It's, it's probably pushing high 60s, low 70s. Oh, nice. And yeah. it's sunny. I mean, for us, there's a little chill in the air. So you uh, <laughs> might have to put on long pants or have a sweatshirt later today. It's, it's fairly, fairly nice all the time. We have coastal fog this time of year. So sometimes there is a gloomy day. We're, we had sun for about three minutes today. <laughs> did you, I'm glad you saw it if you had yeah. three minutes worth. We did for in the morning for a little while and then now it's cloudy again, but that's yeah. Michigan. I mean, I lived in, I lived in um, New Jersey outside of New York city for almost 20 years. Oh, and yeah. then I grew up in Idaho. So you know, I've lived in snow country, different parts of the country, and it's all beautiful in its own way. And I loved most of it. Um, I did get, you know, I got tired of the gray about February. Yeah. So it was, it was the springtime gray that used to drive me a little batty. So now what's your position there uh, at Point Loma? I am the professor of Christian ministry and practice. So in many places, I would be a professor of practical theology, um, intersection of uh, the ministry arts with school of theology. That's where I do my teaching. I teach preaching and uh, teaching the Bible. I uh, teach pastoral care. Uh, my general education class from about a year ago is now women in the Christian tradition. I fought for about eight years to get one of our gen ed history classes taught from the writings and the voices of women, um, you know, against the ridiculous opposition of, well, you know, you can't teach that. That's too many heretics. <laughs> it's like, oh, <laughs> brother. <laughs> oh, brother. <laughs> Literally, oh, brother. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I teach Christian formation in our master's program and pastoral care in the master's program. Uh, and so then, so in the D-Min program, do you teach certain parts or do you oversee the whole thing? Like what's your role in that? I teach year two in the program that's focused on spiritual formation. And so the first year is sort of introduction to spiritual formation and uh, a focus on the works of Henry Nowen. And then year oh, yeah. two, which I do, is um, formation in community. So it's my particular interest. I would say it's my call within a call. And so uh, I focus on how do you think about tending to faith formation in community? Because yeah. God wants a people. Right. God is calling a holy people. And so much of formation focused on the individual. And it's not like it's a separate um, task, but uh, individuals can be incredibly pious on their own, <laughs> right? but that doesn't mean anything about being transformed in the likeness of Christ. It's the community part and the relational part, which is the hard part. It is, it is. And then when we're in, when we get in commun community, that's really when we bump up against one another and it, and it helps to, you know, sand down the rough edges of our individuality and that that really is where we're more I agree I agree I actually say that um that the community is the curriculum yeah you know I mean that doesn't mean that the scripture is not at the center and our practices and our relationships and our beliefs they're all a part of it but that the overall sort of learning agenda is life and community yeah With, with Christ and scripture at the center of it. Right. That's so good. Now, did you grow up in the church? Did you grow up in the faith? What's, what's your faith? I background? grew up in the church of the Nazarene. I did. Um, my dad and mom both uh, were raised in the church of the Nazarene. Um, my grandmother and my great grandmother joined the church of the Nazarene before 19 when the Pentecostal uh, mission in um, Brooklyn, and then my grandfather was a Salvation Army uh, leader. My mom came into the church through an aunt who was a Nazarene, 
and they left their Methodist early years. And so both of my parents were raised in the Church of the Nazarene and married after meeting at Eastern Nazarene College. And my dad was a minister who then went on to become a professor of religious education at Northwest Nazarene University. And then mom was a reading teacher and a Sunday school teacher for many years who loved second graders. <laughs> so yes, I was raised in a church in, in a church most of the week, whether it was after school, visiting parents, my dad at work or caravans or uh, Sunday night, Wednesday night, weekends. I was a church kid. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah, you said your dad was a right or you were a pk your dad was a pastor does he did he lead a church his whole ministry or just for a while and then he went into be a, become a professor yeah my father uh was a youth pastor then he was a church planter solo pastor of a church in indianapolis and uh while he was in those early years he had this real sense of call to young adults it was during the late 60s, early and late 60s, 1960s. And he was so curious about all the changes in youth culture and really wanted to serve near uh, one of what he would have said, our campuses, which he would have had that in Nazarene College. And so when one of his mentors uh, became the pastor at Nampa First Church of the Nazarene in Nampa, Idaho, he called my dad to come be an associate pastor there. And it was always my dad's hope and intention that he would go on, get further education and do both teaching and serving the church. And he did that for a while, but pretty soon it became clear that he was going to spend really 40 years of his life uh, at Northwest Nazarene. I know. Oh, I know you're a professor. Are you also ordained? Yeah. Okay. I am. I was ordained in um, 1995 by the Church of the Nazarene in the Metro New York district. I started the process uh, much earlier than that when I was in San Francisco. I started ministry right out of college working with a church plant that was focused on the urban homeless in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I spent the first maybe 10 years of my um, post-college life. During that time, I made my living in publishing, working in books during the day, and it was uh, for the religious books division of a major publisher. So religion and ministry, right. whether it's the sort of uh, resource side or the active ministry side, they've both been a part of my life from the very beginning of my ministry career. And so uh, during that time, I went to seminary. I didn't know if I'd be ordained or not. I took the steps through the process, found it very confusing. Um, because I didn't go to a Nazarene seminary and my husband was ordained. And so a lot of communication, people assumed that either he would tell me things or that they had told me things when they hadn't told me things. So I found it a long and rather confusing journey. And I thought that was just my own experience and that there must be something that I was missing. I now know that's not the case. <laughs> but at the time, when you don't know a lot of other people on the journey, when I was ordained, finally, um, I guess this was just before, before I was ordained, when I was licensed uh, at pastor's retreat, I was the only female. And they basically say, well, go wherever you want. And it felt very, it didn't feel like a choice that should be up to me, because I would offend whichever group I didn't go with. And I was both a pastor's wife and a, a district licensed minister right. on the way to ordination. And so I usually chose to go with the other pastors, but it was a odd and complicated process. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up in the church at all. Um, I mean, I have a little bit of a Catholic background. So when I started the journey, I like I knew nothing at all and it was very complicated and so I have worked very hard over the last 16 years to help navigate anyone I can see through the process because it's not very streamlined and um, every district seems to have their own you know MO of how they communicate and do the process so yeah it's 
They do. Each district does. And it's one of the challenges working in high education is we help prepare the students educationally, but then their processes are on their own districts. And the districts have um, quite a wide variety of clarity about their processes. I will say that in our region, I'm impressed in recent years that the districts have started becoming clear about their process. What happens year one? What are the deadlines? Uh, what are the uh, application processes? What are the documents you need? What questions will you need to prepare to be asked? And many of that came out of uh, sort of a hue and cry of confusion or a misunderstanding in the process, particularly around many of our women's students or students who didn't fit a particular pathway mold. And so um, I think the districts are getting better, but it is, it is um, something that most students don't understand or people in the process that each district has its own special gatekeepers yeah. and its own process and is they're free to do that. Yeah. Our district worked hard the last eight years to really try to fine tune it and communicate it. But then even still, because you have you know, lead pastors who have all had different experiences. Some of them have, were ordained on different district or different states. Um, they don't even understand the process. So, uh, or they don't understand like the new process of communicating that we've um, you know, tried to form over the last few years. So it's, it is getting better. Uh, we're starting to see some more consistency, but there's still, there's still work to be done. Definitely needs to be tweaked and honed and uh, yeah, the, and especially among the women clergy, because like for the men, there's, because there's so many men, there's a lot of organic mentoring, coaching and ministry that happens without, without it being formalized where with the women, because there's not as many of us, um, we have to be really intentional about forming those mentoring circles and coaching circles so like even the last couple of years, I've tried to take, like at least try to have a list, even if we just had a list of all of the ordained women that we could share with those going through the process, um, help it be a little more, I mean, it's not gonna be organic, but at least be intentional about it. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And we have to basically do that district by district. I do think there's been some regional movement with the uh, Wesleyan Holiness women clergy representatives and some districts that's more organized than others. So how did you, how did your call come to you? How did you receive your call? Like, was it a process of God just speaking to you about your call? How, how did that happen for you? Oh, absolutely. I would say that um, the church called forth gifts in me. Yeah. And when I was young, I was very aware that the church um, saw me as someone who was articulate, who had a passion for uh, ministry, particularly compassionate ministry, or at the time it would have been focused more on um, mission trips, going to places that were far away from home, and seeking to live out ministry as a, as a youth and young adult. So I'd say the church called forth the gifts in me, and then the struggle began to be, well, what does that mean for me as a, as a young woman who was coming of age during the second wave of feminism, which was not a really loud voice in the church in any way, but it was certainly a louder voice in the culture that I was raised in. And so um, I really had this sense when I was 17, I had a, an experience of probably hearing the first woman that I remember preaching. I remember seeing a woman preach before, but I don't remember hearing her. Uh, I may have been young enough to leave the service or something. Right. Uh, but I remember at 17 going to a large um, youth gathering and hearing a woman preach about being radical for God. And the word radical has been a happy word for me ever since the kind of to the roots kind of Christian was right. my sense of call. So I see vocation first as that call to ministry that we all share. And then it's been a process of figuring out what's that specific gift-oriented sense of calling that I have. And I would say that it took some time for that to uh, become clarified. I wanted first to follow a career in writing and doing ministry more through writing and through communications. 
that was my first degree. And uh, my early experience was being active in ministry, but using the written word, particularly at the time, to be the pathway for ministry. And it was only later, as I got more involved in local church ministry, that I realized that I had these community gifts in formation. And uh, again, as I moved forward in various church settings and worked in uh, larger churches where preaching ministry and oversight ministry and you know working with children's ministers and youth ministers and senior adult ministers and sort of overseeing all of that, I realized I had these organizational gifts for community that were a part of my call as well. But I don't think as a young person that had this real sense of call to ministry, I didn't have uh, female role models that I could look at and say, oh, she looks something like I might look when I'm her age or her voice sounds something like my voice. I didn't have them. So it took me a while to imagine such thing. And so it was more a matter of looking outside of my own denomination. I went to seminary in a denominational, in a, in a non-Nazarene uh, multi-denominational seminary, primarily because they had so many women faculty. Right. And so between the women faculty that I uh, learned from in such a powerful way, and then the master's thesis that I did at the time that became the uh, book ordained women in the church of the Nazarene, the first generation, those years were pivotal to me where I began to see some women outside of my own denomination. And then I heard more and more of the stories and discovered many of the powerful stories in our denomination that had not been shared with me. Um, I knew they were there, but nobody told me them or I didn't uh, see too many. There were a few women who were encouraging. A few gave me files um, when they had finished researching not knowing what to do with them. And they'd say, here, you take him now. And I guess I'm in that stage in my career and life now that I feel like doing the same thing. I want some other people, I'm so glad for your podcast, to keep telling the stories and keep um, putting some of these mentors that may not be living now, but whose stories continue to mentor in plain view. Because for me, they were the mentors that um, I didn't have I had a lot of male mentors, so I don't want to discount that. Um, and I'm very grateful for the kindness and the encouragement that I received. Um, but it, it still took me a surprising amount of time to see myself in the public leadership roles. Right. Yeah, someone gave me, when I was starting to sense a call to ministry, and my call came earlier uh, on, like when I first came to faith in Christ, but I was still in the Catholic church. Um, so once, when I came to faith in Christ, then I worshiped in the Catholic church for four years before I ended up in the church of the Nazarene. And that's its own story, but it just, I, like, I had this sense of a call call, but it, I knew I wasn't going to be a nun. I was already married. Right. So, so I didn't have any, I couldn't picture anything else. So then when I came into the church of the Nazarene and started to sense a call, a friend of mine actually gave me your book. And that was when I began to see wow, like I didn't even know all of, I didn't even know that these, all these things were possible um, and read through, you know, the early days and women planning churches and starting schools and orphanages. And yeah, it, it was fabulous to read all those stories because I had been in the church of the Nazarene for a few years before I even realized that they ordained women. So that book was really pivotal for me um, to be able to begin to envision that a call would look something like that it is shocking to me it's 27 years ago maybe that that book was first published and uh when i teach this women in christian tradition class and they i make them uh read portions of it and they have to write a letter to one of the women that appeals to them and uh, thank them for something that they've learned from someone who lived long before they did. And the letters are, are so poignant. Uh, and the surprise of students to recognize that this is not the most forward moment ever, that there are many women who were uh, radicals and pioneers and reformers. Uh, they have a vision of what a, that what a um, woman leader looks like. And uh, 
it expands their horizons to recognize these women in Victorian gowns, <laughs> dusty, <laughs> dusty Victorian gowns, or may have packed a pistol or uh, rode a horse or played the accordion or whatever the, the time period might have been, uh, used their gifts and uh, were institutional um, leaders and reformers in a time that, they, that students often think that it's, it's all backwards and women have just begun to move into creative institution birthing kinds of moments. And while there's more of us that are doing it now, history is just replete with uh, women who were incredible in their sense of call and their sense of courage and their entrepreneurship. Yeah. So how did that book come about anyway? Well, I wanted to read it is how it came about is I had always been told that the Church of the Nazarene ordained women and my dad always championed that reality but being me and always being a little bit of a questioner I said where are they and if they're not living where I'm living or living in my arena where can I read about them and as I started poking around and talking to people I realized the stories had been told one here and one there, but there was not a particular place to go and find the narratives, the stories that I found to be so fueling to my own ministry. And so in talking with the folks at Nazarene Archives, um, Stan Ingersoll, the archivist for many, many decades, his wife is um, a minister. And so he had a particular interest and he had kind of tagged a lot of files, but nobody had taken up the challenge to go and look. So I went and read the dusty old journals and some of them were on what, nobody knows what it is now, but microfish where you go blind oh, looking yeah. at these little, <laughs> these little machines for, um, you know, filming old documents. So I did my best to recreate the narrative as best as I could find the material. And so with Stan's guidance and with some others, Phyllis Perkins and Janet Williamson, some of the women who before me had taught at the Bible College or in other places where they had found snippets and stored some of the material that they knew, we just pulled that, I pulled that together and that was my master's thesis. And I thought that I was writing it so that I had done my part, I could hand it off, and then I could go on and do other things. <laughs> it didn't, it didn't turn out to be quite that way. No. Well, I'm, I'm glad you ended up pursuing it all the way and publishing it. Um, we probably need a next generation we, book, you know. Oh, absolutely. I'm one of these days when I'm not grading papers, uh, <laughs> I intend to write a sort of a, a update um, a retrospective just to update that book. But I am always hoping that someone will pick up the mantle and say, that's first generation. What about the second through fourth or fifth generation right. uh, stories and particularly international stories? You know, at the time when I wrote the book, I was focused on the U.S. Uh, I think the church was, hadn't grappled as thoroughly as it has and is with being an international church. And so the sort of first generation of women, clergy from around the world, what an interesting book. Uh, some were simultaneous to the ones I wrote about in the early part of the 20th century, but many of those stories are more recent. And I hope somebody does it, whether it's in written form or interview form, or I hope somebody does that work sometime. Yeah. Well, for 2021, I, I would like to get a, a few international uh people on the podcast, women on the podcast. That would be fun. I have, I have uh, one gal from Kenya, but she's actually, she was actually Wesleyan church, um, but she's been on the podcast. Um, so it'd be nice to have a few Nazarene women from around the world, international on the podcast too. So I'm always yeah, looking for recommendations. For <laughs> I, I will, I will um, suggest some names. All right. Oh, that's awesome. One of the things I always ask you know, advice for women, but specifically, if you just talk about giving advice to uh, women who, women clergy who want to write, because the question came up in the Nazarene face, women Facebook group 
I think about a week ago, of who, you know, who's written books that who's in here has written books. Um, and so there were several who had posted, which I didn't know about. I mean, some of them I knew, I knew Tara Beth Leach um, and a couple others who had uh, written some books. What I kept hearing a lot of was, I want to write, I just don't know how to get started, I, you know? And so maybe some advice on women clergy, because we do need to hear, I think we need more women clergy writing books, getting their voice in print also. So just advice you have for them. Sure. It's, it's a changing world. So I'm always reluctant to be too declarative because my publishing experience is rooted in a more print world than the current digital world. But with all writing, it's, uh, you begin writing uh, what you know to those that you know. And so the first thing usually is not to start out by wanting to write a book first, but to use all the other shorter mediums to really get good at your craft, to create a bit of a um, audience for yourself, to recognize responds to you. Because publishers are looking for not only good material, but it has to be marketable. And so they have to know who are you and why are you the right person to write this material and who is it that you um, want to read this? And we all want to say everybody, but that's always a little bit uh, wider than a, a good marketing plan would be focused on. So who is it really? And what is the niche or the need or the perspective that you add to the conversation? Um, what other books are out there that you're writing maybe for similar people, but you have a really particular message and angle? Thinking through those kinds of uh, questions are essential for anyone who wants to write a book um, and have it published. And uh, whether you do that yourself and self-market it or whether you're going through one of the primary publishers. And so those are kind of key questions. And the other is just to let other people read your stuff, give you feedback and be willing to write and rewrite and uh, be in publishing circles. Go to the webinars and go to conferences or uh, talk to other people who are writing books similar to yours and hear their publishing stories. Mm -hmm. uh, because that there's always also, it's kind of a little like internet dating <laughs> to, try <laughs> right. to, find, to, to, try, to try to find the right publisher for you. I've, I've jumped on a, a couple of them recently. Cause I, you know, I don't know what's going to come out of this, but there is a sense of, um, you know, this is her story of, you know, taking some of these, some of the stories from generations. Like I think about even Dr. Nina Gunter, who, you know, she, you know, those stories. pioneer, stalwart, stalwart yeah. champion of women. Yeah. I don't, we need to capture more of those stories and, and make sure they're being passed along because even like when, when I, when we planted 10 years ago, a couple of the women who came and were part of our core team had grown up in the church of the Nazarene. And they're like, like they had never heard a woman preach before me, you know, I was like, that's just, just blew my mind. You know, um, one of them who came with us that the church of the Nazarene had just started ordaining women recently. And she had grown up Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you know, uh, camp meeting, everything. And I, so I had explained to her, no, we've been ordaining women for this long. And she's like, wow, I never knew that. So there really is this need to keep telling women's store, stories about their call and their ministries. And I mean, some of them are just doing incredible creative things in the new day, in these new days that, um, you just don't hear about them or you hear about the same three or four stories. I agree. I agree. It's, it's both a, a wonderful world in which there's many more means to tell the stories, but there's also so many competing stories that it seems like one, two, or three get told over and over again. Mm -hmm. And so finding some of those um, mechanisms to tell stories is, I think, super important. And I'm totally supportive of you know, uh, people like Nina Gunter and Carla Sundberg, and then, you know, I could list a number of others. There's a whole group of women that are either a few years older than me or a few years younger than me. And most of us ended up being the 
first woman to teach in one of the Nazarene schools. I wasn't the first at Point Loma, but there's sort of this, this group of, of women who in some ways stayed when many of our colleagues and other women of our age looked around and said, I think we'll go somewhere else. And mm-hmm. so there are these stories of those who persisted and stayed um, that probably uh, would be helpful. And the beauty of the creativity, you know, it's one of the books, Edison Churches a few years ago, and some of those other entrepreneurial, I've used that word a couple times, but just the creative ministry kinds of things. Uh, there's so many women who are doing that kind of uh, creative ministry, um, church planting, and those stories, I hope they do get told more and more. Right. Any other advice for women who have a call? That's usually what I ask uh, women who are wrestling with the call, because it does seem like, especially I think of the ones that are coming behind me, it still seems to be such a long wrestling process. So I guess advice maybe on how to, is there a way to speed the process up? I don't know if there is or not, but just advice for that wrestling with that call and stepping out on faith, I guess. Yeah, I think we've already talked about the importance of letting yourself be mentored uh, and to seek those mentors out, whether they're locally or not. I also think that there's something that I wish somebody would have helped me with long ago, which is to learn not to take everything so personally Mm. and to recognize that institutions and denominations, we swim in cultural waters and those waters are deeply sexist (laughs) and deeply patriarchal. And um, we've had, we have this wonderful story, but we're still swimming in these larger cultural waters. And there are some real progress stories that uh, we want to champion. But some of what happens to all of us isn't just about me or just about you. It's about um, learning to think about systems and culture and the kind of um, changes that are happening, but are happening rather slowly. I find because I work with young women uh, and young men, college age, uh, exploring a call, um, many are impatient. Mm, yeah. And I get that. I was once that age, <laughs> but impatient uh, with the processes. And so to be engaged, to stay engaged with the local church, get as many experiences as possible, be known. And I think it's really important for uh, women who are exploring ministry to be known. If you are known on your district as somebody who has been faithful in this leadership role and who has participated in that one, and sometimes that's difficult if you get overlooked or um, it feels like the doors aren't open, but the more that you're known, and that people can vouch for your skills and your gifts, that leads to the next step faster than any educational experience. We all need education, but if you're not somebody that um, I can call up and say, tell me about so-and-so, what are their gifts? Where do they shine? Uh, Where are the areas where they uh, need to grow and improve? If there's nobody for me to call and I'm one of those people who is looking for um, a new staff member or to take on an intern or something like that, I'm unlikely to pick that person, uh, male or female. And so that um, willingness to both be involved, be engaged, be known, and also recognize that there are certain times when you'll be overlooked and it hurts, but it's not really just because they couldn't see you. It's that they can't they can't see um, somebody who doesn't fit the leadership picture in their head. Right. We were talking the other day because I know that they are looking to do away with or transition out of the course of study at the district level. I know they, they want to move it uh, completely to the colleges. And part of the conversation was that's a really great way to network, um, especially for women when you're taking courses on the district. So especially if they're being taught by other pastors on the district. So you're networking with other students, you get to see a lot more women. Um, If you're, if you're a woman or a person of color, you're more likely to see people like you in your courses and kind of get your face known. Um, And so 
you know, the conversation is kind of now we have to start thinking about if that, if that moves away, how do we begin uh, creating other ways for people to network, you know, especially women and people of color so that, like you say, they do begin to be recognized as uh, they have leadership skills and they're gifted and, and they're available. Um, You know, how do we navigate that and create these opportunities for networking? Because once you go online to the colleges, it, it kind of get you can kind of get lost in that world. You know, I think that these are important conversations. I think the hope is to move the course of study to a place where there's a real evenness and a a, a predictability about the quality of all the programs across the various districts. But as you mentioned, in taking advantage of the new technologies that make it possible for there might to maybe to be some more cohesiveness, whether you go get a degree from a Nazarene school or whether you go through a, um, the replacement to the course of study, there's a good in that. But with all good changes, there are the unintended consequences. Right. And this is exactly one of those to recognize in the processes, how do our districts continue to um, build the sense of, of exploration of call in right. a way that um, allows for people to not only network among themselves, but among those who uh, are the ones who will help call forth their gifts and to shape them. We once in a, a group of, of met with our faculty, met with the DSs in our region, and we looked through all of the ability statements that uh, are required for ordination. And there are a number of them that you cannot teach in a classroom. Yeah. They can't be taught in a classroom. And so I remember circling them and sending out documents afterwards and saying, through the various classes I teach, I can assure you that I am attending to all of these ability statements and that our curriculum, we have paid very close attention to make sure that all of those things are introduced in some way. But the application pieces of how do you how do you get ready for the first funeral Mm -hmm. right I can walk you through the process I can pretend (laughs) I can role play but there's nothing like being engaged in your own local church and shadowing um, your local minister through several of those wonderful pastoral care opportunities to get you ready but there's no classroom experience that can replace that so hopefully this um, new training uh, replacement for the course of study, whatever it looks like, it attends to good education happens in the classroom and it happens um, with hands-on. And how do we look at those processes to strengthen them? So it's not really just up to the person who has a sense of call to figure it all out. Right. No, I, I, think, I think in our districts, we should be definitely brainstorming and you know having that conversation to create some opportunities for for people you know, especially with most of our churches being smaller churches you just you, you're not going to have as many opportunities as you would if you were you know I was fortunate enough I was at uh, Detroit first so I was you know my first assignment was a larger congregation but that's not the case for a lot of women and even just looking for ways, um, you know, like you talked about the funeral. I had a funeral two years ago where a young couple in my church who had been married six months were, was in a car accident and mm-hmm. she was, you know, instantaneously a widow at, you know, 28, 29 years old, uh, newly married. And that was a hospital visit that you don't, you're not gonna, you don't learn about that in the classroom you know, and I was able to actually take a couple of people with me. We went there together to, you know, minister to her. And so they got to experience that. But yeah, you can't duplicate that. And, and we have to have opportunities. Um, if you're building those networks where you can, where you can grab another woman minister or, or just another young minister, someone who's young in ministry and say, okay, come with me. Uh, you know, to the hospital or come with me as I do this funeral so that they can begin having those experiences. Yep. To have someone standing with you, as we all know, and just uh, praying as you are um, standing in 
a situation that no one ever wants to stand in. But when you're there, you know that you are God's representative at the moment to have someone who's standing there praying for you while they're also learning. What does it feel like to walk into someone's um, worst nightmare and personal tragedy and be the bearer of grace and be the reminder uh, that um, God has not left that God is present and we will stand together until that becomes apparent again someday. Uh, those are those are the kinds of, you know, we talk about internships and such, but there, there's more to it than just having a, a short-term role in a church. It's, it's being shadowed. It's being um, raised up into ministry. And right. that's part of the local church and district responsibility. Yeah, it is. I feel like we need more shaping around that uh, aspect, you know. I think there probably will be some districts that take the lead and that hopefully others will be able to emulate. Every district's different, so you can't mandate something. They've tried that and that doesn't work. Uh, But um, I know in our region, we're trying to provide opportunities for young adults that have experienced a sense of call to meet across the districts uh, several times a year. And that's been fruitful for certain age group. It's not always fruitful for um, as many of our women students because women continue to experience a call to ministry a little later uh, than some of the young males do. But that's changing too. That's changing too. But to be in conversation about what does it mean to be called? uh, What does vocational ministry look like? Do you have to be a local church? Uh, minister and increasingly uh, that question has to have a layer of bivocational skills layered onto it right Mm -hmm. oh yeah absolutely I I think uh, and I think it's going to become more and more not less and less oh yeah I agree bivocational trying to encourage the younger gals of please get another degree also (laughs) I've always been grateful that I had my publishing career first I mean I was involved in ministry and I had a staff title, but I didn't get paid anything for years and years and years. I'm so grateful that I had another career and I've always had another part to my vocation that when I either needed to bring in income that wasn't related to my ministry assignment uh, or just have a network that was wider than the church network that they overlapped. So I've been fortunate in that, but I have always been grateful. And um, I think I would encourage people and I do all the time with students. I say, pursue all of your interests because God will um, surprise you (laughs) and make all of them a part of the overflow of your life and your ministry. Yeah. And you never know how much of those other interests will be woven into your ministry. So most of them, I think. Yeah. 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 You know, it's always a reminder that who, who do we think is going to come to any church that we are serving? If it's, uh, if we only know the people that are already within the church or who are the people that are going to challenge us to think more broadly about what it means to follow God. If you're not sort of by disposition or by habit uh, a lifelong churchgoer, who, who are these conversation partners? Who are these people that we're called to love? Who are our neighbors? If it's just the people that are already within the doors. So bivocational ministry is nothing new and it may be a gift to the church, even though I worry about ministers overworking, which they tend to do anyway. Yeah, we do overwork and some of it is putting more responsibility on our lay people uh, to, to step up and be in that role and you know, you're not just here consuming, you're pouring back into the church. So Agreed. Appreciate you sharing all of this. Any, any last words before we finish up today? I just think that the question of vocation is so important and that to trust that your vocation, all of our vocation is to uh, live our lives in response to the love and the reality of God. And not to worry too much about what role vocation will take. Um, If I think back over my life, there are roles that I have felt very comfortable with in ministry. And there's other roles that I came to be comfortable in uh, because I didn't know that I had a particular set of gifts or that 
if we understand that the church has the gifts that it needs, sometimes I may have it as a secondary gift, but the church needs it for me at that particular moment. And it will be called forth in me. So rather than to focus too much on the roles that you hope to play, pay attention to what are the gifts that you have and how do you express those? Uh, I know that because I'm so focused on community and on sort of tending the the uh, joints in a community to make a community stronger, uh, that I do naturally, yeah. no matter where I go. And it took me a long time to realize I do that wherever mm -hmm. I am. And so to allow some freedom to not worry too much about the role or the title, certainly don't let people exploit you <laughs> or to uh, uh, treat others differently if it's on the basis of gender or other things. But for the most part, don't worry too much about the role. Um, worry about how am I able to love God in this particular situation and give it all you've got. And there's something in that that others recognize and then um, you're seen as a minister because you're doing it as the overflow of your life rather than trying to notch into the next ladder step. Um, not too many women have found that to be the, the pathway. Yeah, that is so good about uh, focusing more on the gifts than on the role. I like, I'd like that. Feels a little less restrictive that way. It's proven to be true for me, but then again, I'm, I'm more about uh, the authentic response than I am about ambition. So that's part of my personality as well. Well, I'm more of a authentic over perfection. So that tends to be my way I lean also. So well, well I hope this is helpful to you. It's fun to talk to you and to meet yeah. you and to uh, be reminded of, of God's goodness and faithfulness that uh, those who are following the call to ministry, we do tend to find each other here yeah. and there. And that is always an encouragement. So thank you for being an encouragement to me today. Oh, well, thank you. You've been an encouragement. And I know, uh, like I said, Linda talks about you so much. And um, when we went to M19, I said, I can't go to both of them. She says, I'll go to Rebecca's class. You go to the other one. I said, okay, we'll take really good notes. <laughs> yeah, well, I sure hope that I get to uh, see Linda. This program is supposed to have our face-to-face -face component, but it's been messed up. So we're still having some hopes that next summer might allow for a face-to-face, -face, but we'll see how that goes. Well, it definitely sounds more promising now than it did back in May or June. So Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. All right. God bless, and uh, I'll see you again. Thank you so much.